32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. And I'm Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. This week's county, Armagh. And this week's question, was that, was that a really bad accent? No comment. <laughs> is there anybody out there? A United Ireland alien special. That was Andrea. First item on your list is AOC's hair. She just got a really nice haircut. I just thought it was worth mentioning. I haven't seen it. No, actually, it isn't about her haircut. What it is about is the fact that she got her hair done um, and it cost $300. And there was outrage of the fact that a socialist was spending this much money on getting her hair done. Um, Obviously, raising a lot of questions in terms of the patriarchal view of women that, A, they need to present themselves well. But when they do, then there's an issue that they're spending too much money. Then also, there's the issue of a socialist um, should be dressed in rags and looking like scruff. Um, she's now a politician in uh, US politics. Uh, $300 on a haircut and highlights is not that much to spend. And there was an apps like there was a full furore. And like the fact that women's the gaze on women and what they do with how they look is just outrageous. I like the headline in Vogue that said mad about AOC's $80 haircut because I think it was the rest of it was their highlights. Or yeah. You'll hate Mike Pence's $600 limo bill. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just so funny. And when I say funny, we obviously mean I don't mean funny. But it's just so funny the way the light is shine, shined shone on women and their expenditure on what they look like. And then the Republicans who are whacking out all these fortunes on absolute crap. Yeah. Next up on your list, this is obviously something else that I missed. I'm being extraordinarily <laughs> detached these days. Uh, something to do with Matt Cooper and Niall Boylan and natural disasters. <laughs> so, Niall, climate change denier, bopping on. Well, maybe this is this talk show host. Yeah, guy. who just says anything to right. like get clicks and ratings or whatever. Mm-hmm. Pops on to Matt Cooper and is talking about, holds up a chart that illustrates natural disasters. And he's like, obviously, it's clear that uh, natural disasters are falling because the chart shows them falling. When actually what the chart was, was the deaths that are happening within natural disasters and obviously that's how we react to natural disasters but if you look at the chart for uh, reported natural disasters they are actually on the rise so it's the misrepresentation of information that was not questioned and just let go on the show which why I think is this guy on why is this guy Niall Boylan on Matt Cooper's show talking about climate change it's so stupid it's like why do we and that was I think the issue that was highlighted with the chart is like why do you not have fact givers on to talk about this rather than controversial shock jocks and I think the answer is very clear is that these shows are getting people on to get clicks to get tweets to get conversations and to get notoriety it's all completely worth this if they actually tried to do something good they would have a bigger audience um I just think it's so lame. Like having people on like that is so lame so but like and then the question that comes out of that is is he going to be booked again Probably. Well, considering, you know... He has his own fucking show. (laughs) He has his own show. And, like, there's absolute trash on that um, Matt Cooper show. That's the one with the... uh, Ivan Yates. With Ivan Yates, yeah. 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 
next up, the government's approval rating, the government who has the highest rating of homelessness, etc., etc., has jumped from 31% to 42%, according to an Irish Time Ipsos M or BI poll. And most notably in that, Radker is getting his highest rating yet for job satisfaction at 51%. This is me going to the airport. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What is wrong with people? Who knows? I guess like people just have houses and they're happy and people are making more money. They don't give a shit about anyone else. So well done, everyone. Well done. Well done on the rising approval rates. (laughs) (laughs) But do you know what's also shocking about landlord TD post going over cross tabulization? Uh, uh, somebody called out the fact that TDs were landlords and I can't remember I think it's like 20 qu- uh, something percent of them were. but uh, one of the TDs and I'd love to know his name but I can't remember I'll get it but he came back and said uh, what's wrong with a landlord commenting on homelessness and the crisis in the thing as a TD that's my area of excellence and it sh- I've worked to be a uh, qualified in this area why like that's like saying that teachers shouldn't talk about education or um, all these vocations shouldn't talk about their expertise when it comes to making laws um, and policies around education that a TD as a landlord is validated in talking about homelessness it's a pity these people aren't qualified to be actual legislators that would be um something novel for people working uh, in in Dolairn anyway I just I'm gonna like I'm gonna just decide to um, pretend that that poll didn't happen but I suppose what it does show is just constantly I mean we talk about discontent about people feeling you know very much like marginalised by this Finnegal regime um, you know people struggling with housing the mental health issues that the rental crisis is bringing up you know people going out like cultural and creative space is like the most important thing in their lives and ultimately it is just such a minority view to care to really care about those things when you think about it and the if book- you're on the gravy train you have a few properties you're getting some money in you're going on holidays all the time and you're not connected to or seeing these issues you're like this is great we're all doing so well yeah it's very easy to get blindsided and I think that um, you know it's funny that a really interesting um, stat in that poll is you know the social democrats are at 1% support and when you think about the disproportionate representation that they may have in terms of you know people who support them let's say probably like in my peer group or people that I see around me who may have voted for them or you know the the amount of coverage let's say Gary Gannon gets or something um you, you know the the I hate to use the word bubble but the interest that I feel that I have and um, the things that I think are important and that a lot of my peers feel are important are clearly not important to the majority of people in this country mm. um, and I guess that that's you know the selfishness that um, exists when people are you know being citizens of capitalism yeah and also interesting is that all the independent alliance and all the independents were down as well so it's very difficult I suppose to showcase the work that they're doing and to get approval ratings going when everyone's talking about Fine Gael and what they're doing because they're leading the charge I suppose in getting the coverage as opposed to the work that's been done by other people. Yeah and I think Brexit as well is just going to be used as a tool to maintain the status quo mm-hmm. for, for the next, for the foreseeable I suppose because it's just going to be, like certainly the election um, you know next May let's say 
when it's predicted to be happening, it, it's just going to be like, you know, you need to save our hands. We need to, you know, steady the ship. Brexit's happening. We all need to just keep our heads down and, and, you know, don't make any sudden movements mm. and nobody change anything. Um, and that's obviously going to be the messaging that's that's going to be coming out. Um, this bill that's coming through the Dulb, um banning the blacklisting of um, journalists from different media platforms. This is on the back of Communicore um, banning uh, journalists from the website The Currency um, and also um, Irish Times journalists um, from their stations because they are very, very sensitive about anybody who says anything about people like Dennis O'Brien and George Hook and that kind of crack. I don't know if, I don't, I mean... But like even if, like Sinn Féin are bringing the bill through, if they do build, bring the bill through, they'll just be an unofficial like, oh yeah, sure, we'll have any journalist on, but they just won't ask any journalists on from those platforms. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, I mean, I don't, I, I wonder what basis this bill could be upheld in, you know, in terms of amending the Broadcasting Act to make it the breach of contract for broadcasters to ban an NUJ member. Um, I don't know how how kind of solid that would be in a legal context. I'm sure the private, you know, bro- broadcasters, like commercial mm. broadcasters, like, you know, Today FM and News Talk can just say, actually, we can select whoever we want. Yeah. Like, we, you know, um, and, you know, journalists aren't entitled to, uh, like print journalists are, or online journalists aren't entitled to appear on, um, you know, different radio stations depending on the owner. So I think that'd be a difficult one. I mean, it's interesting to see Sinn Féin bring it through. Obviously, um, they have experience with their own pals and uh, members being banned from the airwaves back in the day. What else is happening? Uh, police have banned Extinction Rebellion protests from the whole of London. So I think that is, it's really bringing it I just found an instant comparison with Hong Kong and the kind of trying to ban uh, peaceful protests and what that says and what that signifies. And they kicked everyone out from where Trafalgar Square, where the camp was. Um, And there is another camp, but they are planning to move them away from that as well. So I think that how like stopping protest. Yeah, I mean, I guess they've arrested so many people over the last uh, couple of years, you know, in the thousands at this stage. 129 um, in the last week. Mm, yeah, it's bonkers. Um, finally, um, Patreon is moving its European HQ to Dublin, another tech company here. Of course, we are on Patreon and they take a percentage. So we need more supporters. <laughs> Give some money. Maybe um, they can offset their uh, that against their corporate tax for Irish made um, podcasts uh, when they come to Dublin. How likely do you think that is? Mm. No. Also, I think it is worth t- saying uh, to keep an eye on what is going on in Syria with the Kurds and the Turkish invasion following the US pulling the troops out. There's a lot of shit going down and the more you listen and uh, look at what's going on the more raging you'll be um, and it's just so sad I think um, and The Daily had a really good explainer podcast yesterday about it all um, so maybe have a listen Yeah, profoundly depressing and um, I think there's like I was reading this piece in the New York Times about how there's some old Kurdish saying that translates as no friends but the mountains because of the history of betrayal of um 
Kurdish people. They're getting it from all sides. Yeah, so and it's have always, it's such a it's such a well. Obviously, you know these are these are the the things that um you know Donald Trump isn't shouting at his rallies um that he's basically you know the recklessness after um uh, Kurdish fighters and American fighters fought alongside each other um in Syria uh, and elsewhere um and it is just profoundly depressing and upsetting and uh you know this is this is uh the state of the world sorry i'm really fucking nihilistic <laughs> this week i'm just i find it actually really difficult to keep um reading stuff about syria which is the most pathetic thing ever because obviously i'm not experiencing it but um yeah listen to that episode of the daily as andre recommended okay we're going to take a completely different direction this week it's all about aliens. It's our long-awaited <laughs> aliens episode. This is our ma. The truth is out there. Not our mothers. That's our ma. Our ma. <laughs> okay, let's go. So you may be wondering what our ma has to do with aliens and the exploration of space. Well, stay with us on this one, right? One of the underrated gems of this island of ours is Armagh Observatory and the nearby Armagh Planetarium. Now, the observatory was founded in 1789 and the Estonian astronomer and astrophysicist Ernst Julius Oppich was based there for over 30 years. In his research in the early 20th century, Oppich estimated the distance of the Andromeda Galaxy, which is the nearest major galaxy to Argaf, the Milky Way. And to determine this, he used a method based around um, the rotational velocities of the galaxy. And that's a method that is still widely used today. His other findings included predicting the frequency of craters on Mars and the origins of comets, which he believed uh, came from a cloud beyond Pluto. And he was right. And it's so it's in the spirit of such discoveries and the importance Arma holds in astrophysics that we are bringing you this alien space exploration United Ireland episode. Hit me with the Arma facts. I know not that much about Arma. I'm realising. Welcome to me at every county. <laughs> <laughs> so population 174,792. It is known as the Orchard of Ireland and it produces over 35 million apples per year. And the main one is the Armagh Bramley, which received like the, what's that thing that you get, the DOC in Italy for mozzarella and champagne. Oh. This is the PGI, which is the Protected Geographical Indication, um, which is given by the EU. So it's it's given to all the best products in the world or the, in the EU. So loads of cider. Maybe they'll Armagh. take that back with Brexit. Um, and apparently St. Patrick planted... Are you just ignoring my cider remark? Oh, sorry, go on. There's loads of cider in our math. Oh, yeah, very good. St. <laughs> <laughs> like, Patrick planted the first apple tree. Um, really? <laughs> Jesus, he was busy, wasn't he? But there is loads of cider in our math. There's MacGyver's. Oh, I thought that was just an aside, not like no, a fact. No, MacGyver's, Doyle's Cider, the Armagh Cider Company. It's our own. It's the Normandy... Of Ireland. I've just christened it. <laughs> it was also christened uh, Bandit Country during the Troubles. Yeah. Um, it is believed to be the burial ground of legendary High King of Ireland, Brian Boru. And that's actually in one of the cathedrals, the Roman Catholic one, that was knocked down and rebuilt 17 times. 
which is bananas. Like bananas. Another thing that's bananas is that it's the only city in the world to have two cathedrals. Only in the world, like. Go on, Armagh. They have a Protestant one and a Roman Catholic one. There you go. Which, yeah, when we were, they were invaded by uh, the Brits, they made them build a, change one of them to a Protestant one. Right. Uh, you can still visit Navan Fort, which is a tree fort that was home to ancient rulers of Ulster. And it's not very, like, salubrious. So if I was ruling Ulster, I'd want a bit more salubrious shenanigans. But look, that's me being uh, capitalist-led, isn't it? Um, the penalty kick was invented by an Armagh man. His name was William McCrum. And it was written into the rules of the game in June 1891 because there was a lot of kickback because there was a lot of like... Hey. Uh, <laughs> that was obviously on purpose. Um, there was a lot of kickback um, against it because there was a lot of the like... What's that thing when people are gentlemanly, like gentlemanly code? So they were like, we don't need the penalty kick. We will just play the rules as they are. And then they realised that people are saps. So they went with it and put the uh, penalty kick in. I cannot wait for your oral history <laughs> podcast on um, f- football. football. Yeah, it's going to be brilliant. I did not know Sports that, ball. though. Yeah. What a contribution to the world of sport. Yeah. One of the few things that happens in many soccer games. Oh my god, it's the only thing that makes soccer worth watching for me. When, I mean, I do you know, like I, I love a penalty shootout. It's uh, the only gasp. It obviously Andrew's seething <laughs> in the corner. Um, I mean, I, I'm a football fan, but less so, I think, as I get older. I just kind of do you know what I do like utility of it all. I love the drama <laughs> of like the like more international players shall we say falling to the ground and like you watch rugby and everyone's getting battered and then someone like tips off and they're like oh my god it's so gas that's my entertainment when I have to watch football now this is actually my favourite one so Coo Cullen from I'm like I really like Irish mythology it's a really nice stories they're like they're lovely but and Coo- mad as well like ourselves yeah like we are a mad country um Coo Cullen was named on Sleeve Guillon, and I bet you that's not how you pronounce it. Gillon? Gillon. Gillon? Gillon? Anyway, it's the highest point in in Armagh, and it's an extinct volcano. But it's also, you can see across five counties from the top of it. Mm, Nice. Magical. I'd say that's lovely to go on. Anyway, Coo Cullen, who at the time was known as Satanta, was bopping around, playing a bit of Hurley, and... Cullen had invited the King of Ulster, Concover Macnassa, to bop over for some brunch, maybe. Um, and he was on his way over. It was sad feasting, but like, what's a better feast than brunch? Nothing. He was on his way over for brunch and he passed the tent to playing um, hurling. And he was like, wow, that guy, he has got a lot of raw talent come on for some brunch mimosa <laughs> so <laughs> he bops him over and he goes with him like no questions asked which is a bit weird I suppose he's the king um, and then <laughs> he goes over and the uh, Cullen in his castle has left out his dog the big hand to protect himself and nobody could like get past the dog and they're like sweating for a brunch so <laughs> The Tanta pops in and kills the hound and 
he felt really bad about it then obviously because the dog was gorgeous um, uh, vicious but gorgeous and then he decided that he would grow another dog a giant hound and in the meantime while it was growing he would be the protector of the castle and that's why they called him Kukulin yeah, the Hound of Cullen. Yeah. Um, can I just <laughs> applaud that retelling of the of um, the facts and legend of Coo Cullen transitioning towards... I'm going to get it. Satanta to Coo Cullen. Yeah. Bit grimmer. There's like a nuclear bunker that was built in 1959 near Portadown. It's in the middle of a field. And it only closed in 1991 but it's the only one that's been restored and you can climb down into it which like Grimasaurus um, but you need to be able to deal with heights because you have to climb down really far but like volunteers like imagine volunteers would go into it and live in it for three weeks at a time I don't know what they were trying to achieve I probably should have looked into that a bit more maybe if you could survive a nuclear blast but it didn't happen so grand uh, it's home to the Taylor factory uh, no, not that Taylor. The other Taylor factory. Uh, excuse me? There's two Taylors. The yellow bag and our bag. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was sectarian. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's like, I know there's been, <laughs> I was about to make the most gas statement. That's been one of the biggest issues around Brexit. <laughs> Is this Taylor shenanigans because there's a trademarking issue between them um, and somebody brought up Republican potato to the north and was selling them and there was uh, they were ordered to stop doing it because of the trademark of the yellow bag of Tato. Wow. This this is what we're going to be up against now on October 31st. Tato. The, <laughs> the tato, biggest issue. Tato, um, like I've never eaten Tato from the north. It, does it taste differently? I've never eaten it either. It, like the pa- I think the the Republic of Ireland Tato Southern Tato oh my god this is just like getting into a mess um, Southern Tato um, there's just the the so colour scheme is nicer yeah and but uh, ironically red and blue. blue so oh yeah do you know what I mean so there's some kind of weird if we we're gonna have to engage in what will probably become known as crisp diplomacy would you say there the might have been a a glitch in the simulation when they came when it came to the colour scheme of that maybe um, it's the religious home of Ireland uh, it, that was written as the spiritual home of Ireland and I had to take that out because that's in bits it's religion not spirituality because I feel like the spiritual home of Ireland is within each of us um, but, but it's the home of both the Catholic and Protestant archbishops um, and it is also home to winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry Paul Mundoon mm-hmm. former Ian. poetry editor of The New Yorker oh fab yep Ian Paisley and St. Patrick right Glamazons and whilst Dublin holds the title of Ireland's biggest park Lurgan Park is number two and that's located in Armagh not in Armagh uh. I'm confused I'm just going to gloss over that, that <laughs> Armagh joke I'm confused about the St. Patrick thing because I was under the impression that St. Patrick was Welsh well maybe he, it's home to St. Patrick like his spiritual home <laughs> no I think he might like have lived there and like that's the two cathedrals were named after him two cathedrals an excellent West Wing episode for all you West oh, Wing fans out there show. not shot in Armagh
So last week, the Nobel Prize for Physics was awarded to scientists who have made discoveries about the evolution of the universe, including Canadian James Peebles and the Swiss scientists Michael Major and Didier Queloz for their discovery of the first planet beyond our solar system. Such planets are called exoplanets and they're of special interest to anyone who is into the potential discovery of extraterrestrial life, such as this episode's guest Guillaume Anglada Escudet. Guillaume is a trailblazing astrophysicist and scientist who discovered Proxima b, that exoplanet orbiting Proxima Centauri, our closest neighbouring star. He has worked with NASA and the European Space Agency and in 2016 was named by Nature magazine as one of the 10 most prominent scientists in the world and by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. We are delighted to have you on as a guest. Guillaume, hello. Hey, hello. Um, good morning. Tell us a little bit about your own background, how you got into this field. Um, well, yeah, I, I got into exoplanets not not very young. I mean, I was a teenager reading a lot of science fiction. And at some point, I decided that I wanted to understand how um, the universe worked. I liked physics, actually, so studied physics. And then one thing led to the other. When I was studying exoplanets, we knew about two or three of them. So it sounds very exciting, but at the time was not even a proper research field. So I went into this a few years later because when I was doing my PhD, um, I was doing research in something completely different and it looked promising. So I just switched. Um, I kind of, my inspirational reads from when I was young kicked in again. And I decided that it was an exciting thing to do, to, to try to find planets. Um, I also like exploration in general, space exploration. But in my university, I couldn't do Mars or the moon. So I worked on exoplanets. So that's how I reached here, really. Can you tell us what an exoplanet is? Exoplanet um, is just a word for a planet that's not orbiting our sun, it's orbiting another star. That's it. It's just exo. At some point, somebody put the name on it. Nothing really special. Um, just a planet that orbiting another star. And as you're saying, like it's it's when you were growing up, it wasn't um, a very big field. How has the research evolved in recent years? In the last like 15 years, let's say. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Now that we are growing up, I, I realize that actually that was a long time ago. Um, yeah, I mean, at that point, I, I worked with a couple of the pioneers in the exoplanets field. So Paul Butler was one of the researchers that still started to work on this. Um, and he always told us that in 93, 94, when he was going to conferences, he would be treated like one of the UFO people and talking about, oh, we want to find planets around other stars. And they were like, Oh, all these people looking for little green men and aliens. And it was not really even taken seriously at that point. So in 95, the thing exploded because Michel Mayer and Kellos found this new planet. Also, then the Americans confirmed it. That was Paul Butler and his supervisor at the time. And the whole thing started to move very quickly. But these planets were very strange. It's not what people were expecting to find. We now know that our solar system is a very rare um, planetary system. Actually, most of the planetary systems are very different. We can talk about this later if you want. Mm. Um, how, how so is our, is our solar system so rare comparatively? So comparatively, so one thing that's important is that to, to note is that we still don't have the, capa the capability to detect planets exactly as our own. Um, 
we can detect planets similar to Earth around small stars, but not around stars like the Sun. And the thing is that when we look at stars like the Sun, um, we don't see a lot of planets. We see less planets actually than on small stars. But the, the planets that we detect, um, they, are, they don't look like ours. Usually there are compact planetary systems with lots of planets very close to the star, closer than Mercury to the, in, in our solar system. But then there are no gas giants, for example, like Jupiter or Saturn in very long period and, and like dominating the, the planetary system. And we think that actually Jupiter and Saturn were very important to bring life to Earth. So if that's true, then uh, although we are finding all these planets and we think that there are a lot of planets similar to our own, the existence of life might be much more rare than what we thought. And what, why were Jupiter and Saturn so crucial to life on Earth? Because it's, long story short, when, when the planetary system forms, you have the water, usually it's outside the planetary system, because if you are too close to the star, it evaporates. So when the planets form, and in a place that there's no water, they are very dry. So we think that most of the water that it's on Earth today and on, on the other inner solar system became into the into the inner solar system because the gas giants pu pushed them. So these were asteroids, big comets, things like this that like kind of rain on Earth and Venus and Mars. But these were this happened because Jupiter and Saturn kind of um, pushed all these asteroids and. And, and throw them onto, on, onto our planet. Right. Moving outside of our solar system, and, and a few years ago, 2016, your discovery of Proxima b was an extraordinary, exciting development. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the lead up to that discovery and the team that you assembled around what people kind of know as the Pale Red Dot project? Yes, that's a good thing you said here. So it was a team of people, not myself. Um, it took a long time as well. Um, we actually didn't start even the observations that we used. We used archival data from about a decade ago, starting, starting in the 2000s, people started to look at Proxima. But for some reason, it was not taken very seriously. At the time, we didn't know what kind of, pla we didn't know what kind of planets were out there. That's an important point at the beginning. When you start to search, it's like in, in a forest and you are trying to find mushrooms. You don't know where the mushrooms are, right? You don't know if they are under the trees um, and next to the river, whatever. So mm -hmm. at that point, we're looking everywhere and people collected this data and this data stayed there for, for almost a decade. And then um, myself and a collaborator of me uh, who's Finnish is Miko Tuomi looked at reanalyzing all this old data, and we, we saw that there was a signal consistent with the planet, but it was not very, very convincing. And then basically the last five years before the, the kind of final report was build up the case to get an observing proposal and gather a, a large enough team so they would give us the telescope time to, to do the experiment and show that this signal was probably a planet. But we had the hints from this from 2012, we were already kind of looking for it. it. It didn't happen from one day to the next. Right. And like, how do you find these things? I mean, I was kind of looking up this, um, you know, the Doppler method that you're, you, you're kind of mm -hmm. looking for variations around a star um, rather yeah. than l looking, you know, looking in a telescope for solid mass. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. We don't see the planets. The planets themselves don't emit light or very little. And so what we do is look at the star and 
we use this indirect method. We see what the planet does on the star. So if the planet is orbiting the star, um, the planet also has gravitational field and it moves the star a bit together with it along the orbit. So we measure this wobble of the star. We measure the, the motion. It's called the Doppler effect. It's the same effect when you hear a sound that is high pitch when it comes, a car is high pitch when it comes to you and it goes away, it becomes um, like lower mm. pitch. So it's the same effect. We look at the light and we see that when the star is coming to us, the light gets higher pitch and then it goes lower pitch when it goes away. And we measure this over time and we see that it repeats. Um, so it's just measurement. You go to the telescope, you measure the velocity of the star one day and then the next day. And then and after time, you see that the, that there is a consistent wobble that, that repeats over time. And from that, you can get, so how often it repeats gives you how long is a year. And then how large is this wobble tells you how large is the planet. Mm. What do we know about Proxima b as a planet? As a planet, we know very little. Um, for because yeah, this technique that has a problem that you don't see never the planet. We are trying to, but not, we haven't managed to do it yet. So for now, we know that the day, the, the year, so the orbital period, it takes about eleven days to go around the star. Very short. So it's very close to the star. The shorter the period, the closer it is to the star. But Proxima Centauri is a cool star, a very small star. It's very, very faint. And actually, the planet should be at the right temperature to be similar to our own. It has other problems because it's being so close to the star, you have all sorts of radiation and issues. But at this point, we know the distance between the, the star and the planet. We know more or less its temperature and that it's a small planet. So similar to our own um, in this sense. But the similarities end here. We don't know anything else beyond that. And what do you do and how do you feel when you realize you've discovered a planet? <laughs> well, so again, because we had the suspicion that the planet was there, it was more like a vindication mm -hmm. because it took very long time. Not to do, detecting a planet was easy. The, the problem was to convince the observatories to give us the time to do the experiment. That took years uh, and lobbying with a lot of people and finding collaborations and at some point it was not only a matter of scientific capability, it was a matter of um, saying, look, we think that this here, it's not only us, this is, these are 20 people that we think that the planet is here and we really need to look at it and it's very high impact, please let us do the experiment. And when that happened and when we made the experiment and in two weeks we could see clearly that the detection was clear, we were kind of vindicated more than um, Eureka moment was a vindication moment, let's say. Mm. And what does it mean when it's confirmed that it's a planet? Like what, what changes come about f confirming that it's there? What changes? I mean, basically, you have a suspicion, you make your measurements, you have your statistics, you see that it's there, you have do some statistical tests that tell you that this is a significant variability and it's most likely explained by a planet. And But in this case, we probably had enough before announcing the planet that the statistics were sufficient, but this is a nearby star and we had to actually, in a sense, what we did is repeat the experiment in a much more optimal way. So in a, what we did is basically, we made the prediction, if this is truly a planet, because not everybody would have believed it before, mm -hmm. we thought, if this is a planet, in two or in one month, we should be able to see a signal, and in two months, we should be able to confirm it independently completely. And that's how 
this is what happened then we this is why it also was so clear and then it it was very convincing otherwise the community would have think oh yeah these people just want to claim something because they want to be famous or whatever mm. uh, so it required extra work it's like a bit of the particle physics there are some experiments that you can claim that you may have detected evidence but in this case we need to be very sure so essentially it was repeating the experiment and what impact and, does that have then on the bigger picture of planetary exploration this confirmation well the the thing is that well we confirmed something that we started to su- to suspect a few years earlier mm-hmm. that um most of these small stars um have these terrestrial planets that they are in the right place to be similar to our own and therefore um there's something called the drake um drake equation and uh how it's called this guy the the paradox the fermi paradox yeah that says yeah that if all the stars have planets and all the stars may have planets similar to our own which is what we have learned and what this discovery points to and um, why is the case that we don't see evidence of a lot of life and other civilizations in the galaxy um so that discovery and it confirmed the trend in other cases that these stars are very rich in these terrestrial planets still the fermi paradox holds we don't see evidence for life or civilizations so then it probably means that the puzzle is much more complicated than we we think and maybe life requires a lot of things that we don't we know the sufficient conditions but we don't know the necessary so we know what happened on earth but um is that is the only receipt that gives life maybe you need a lot of very low probability events to happen to get the moon to get the gas giants that this is really very rare and it looks like it might be the case actually mm. I I was I think I was reading something by a computer scientist a few years ago who was trying to answer Fermi's paradox by saying perhaps the reason uh, that, you know, if there are potentially infinite possibilities for life outside of our solar system and we haven't been contacted, the reason may be that by the time uh, potential life develops the technology to contact other solar systems or other planets in other solar systems, that technology will have already destroyed them. <laughs> so that's... Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's also supported by the evidence, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, 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 yeah, it's one of the solutions. There are a lot of proposals for the Fermi's paradox, what might be or might not be. The problem is that we cannot test them um, because they are equally plausible, let's say, equally. Mm. There are also the, yeah, Oh no, go on, game. No, no, things like very exotic, saying that we are actually a reserve, like you would go to Alaska to see the bears, so that the people come and look at us without disturbing us because we are an ascent civilization and this is why we don't see them. That's another a bit um, bold um, hypothesis. How do you feel about um, another hypothesis around that, around the simulation hypothesis? Oh, that's oh, that's also this, uh, yeah, that's another one, right? That we live in a simulation. Um, I don't know. Um, the thing is that, for example, even if with current technology, it looks very unlikely that we will be able to travel to nearby stars. So that actually it kind of makes looks like our solar system is our playground simulation or sandbox. Really, we cannot go much further than that. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think it's a pretty complex simulation, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. Beings living in ten dimensions, 
have many more degrees of freedoms and much more physics to play with. So maybe maybe that's the case. I'm not sure I'm very convinced by the simulation argument, though. Okay. Well, one of so the it's just people are just dicks for the sake of it. <laughs> it's not a simulation yeah. crap. <laughs> but one of the things um, with regards to the potential exploration of planets like um, Proxima B, which you and your team discovered, or other ones, how they mm. could be possible in the future, and one of the um, projects that may enable this is the Starshot project, right? Which is trying to develop this light sail spacecraft. Yes. How how would that work? How would a light sail spacecraft journey uh, to a planet outside the solar system so it, it made work um, first well the first thing is that the first exploration that we do on this planet will be with telescopes probably in within the next decade we will have capabilities to get initial images and even some spectroscopy of these planets um, but from there we could tell we, we will be able to tell if there is water if maybe that is CO2 or oxygen, things like this. So that's the first thing. The other thing, if we want to sell interstellar probes and with this technology with the lasers, yes, that um, might be physically possible. There's no physical reason why it should not happen, but we are still talking about maybe sending something that weights one gram or two to uh, the nearest stars that takes 20 years to go there, plus 10 years to send the signal back. And it's not clear if we humans, except for cathedrals and things like this, are able to uh, be committed to projects for such a long time, right? Mm. Um, and that's a bit of a sociological problem, if you want, but it's because it's a pretty boring experiment. You send your probe, and then you wait 20 years, and maybe something happens, maybe something doesn't. Uh, and maybe the, mo- the world has moved on doing something else. So I'm not sure... Maybe technologically we could do something. What you can learn from a one gram chip um, is a it's very limited. So that will probably open more questions than answers. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure it's the la- the next thing um, in this sense. Yeah, because I was wondering, Guillaume, like about the the so the social context of your work and the political context of your work. Because when you look at something like let's say Voyager 1977. Um, you know, Voyager 1 and 2, this kind of sense of hope and exploration and um, possibilities. And I was just wondering if you feel, working in this field, that those kind of sentiments are prioritised now as much when there seems to be a more kind of nihilistic, um, you know, social attitude towards the potential of um, our planet and, and what we should be looking for elsewhere. Well, no, of course, that, that, that has to be true also out of necessity. Um, we cannot explore other planets if we, we are not alive, right, mm. eventually. So not everybody is as sensitive as myself in this thing. Um, so I had a, a conversation uh, a couple months ago. We were writing a white paper for a mission proposal in 20 years, something a bit bold with a very large telescope. and. And at some point I mentioned, oh, I think we should mention the climate change thing because I think these observations can contribute to understand the climate of Earth in the context of exoplanets. And somebody in the discussion, I'm not going to say names, but a very respected person that I respect a lot said, oh, don't worry about this. Um, we just put in the proposal that we will make telecons instead of taking the plane and that's it. <laughs> Uh, I think that uh, and some people still live in that ivory tower now. Um, maybe you heard about this concept. 
mm. just completely disconnected of what happens to the world. Um, so it's so it's true. Um, we have to be more sensitive. We cannot spend twenty billion. I think my personal view: we cannot spend twenty billion on a on a massive telescope in space, expecting that we will learn some fundamental science out of it at this point in time. In a hundred years, maybe we we can do that again. So I think we have to rethink a lot of this long-term exploration, these mega projects in space. Um, also, when we observe from Earth, for example, we, we build a telescope in the desert, we make a road, we make infrastructure. When we launch something that costs 10 billion in space, it's there and it's lost. There's nothing that remains after that. This, so it, it's really a, a big waste if you want. Um, I think we have to really be very careful with these things. Things are expensive, sure, but let's try to think about it a bit more like like in a, an observatory or the Antarctica basis that you go there, you build an infrastructure, then you start to do science and let people propose new science and things like this more than focused on mega missions. I think that's not the way towards the future. Mm, and I guess there's been like that idea of like mega missions or these huge projects has kind of been compounded by... Um, the interest the tech industry has in things like the colonization of Mars and so on. Has that been frustrating for you or scientists like yourself? No, yeah, well, so it has been frustrated. So, for example, now there's a big argument that the space station is there, whatever you can agree or not, I'm not going to the space station. But now the Americans are discussing what to do next, not go to the moon or what. And now the Americans are lobbying, or not the Americans, but some part of the Americans are lobbying for something called the Lunar Gateway, which maybe you heard about it or not. No, I don't know uh, about that. So that's basically take the space station, a small part of it, and put it in orbit around the moon. And no, the scientists don't see the benefit on that. Most of the engineers don't see the benefit on that. But this is, but then there's the lobby of the launchers and the space habitat of the space station that they have the knowledge, that they have the technology, and this is what they can do. Um, and that's not a very good infrastructure. It's in orbit. There's nothing really to go, anything that you want to do there. You have to transport it there. I don't know. It's it's strange. So I'm I'm actually more in favor on trying to build infrastructure on the moon, for example, and, and try to think on that. And if we want to build a telescope in 20, 30 years, we don't even do it on Earth. We just build it on site, on space directly. And that the, the, the economic cost for the planet um, is way lower. And eventually there will be things that will benefit back from Earth as well. So, I, but not about just going there and planting a flag. No, no, let's just go there set up a, a base, set up some manufacturing processes, start doing things there, start to live there a bit. And I think that, um, let's say, use of the, not exploitation, use of the space as a, as a place to, to work and live um, can start if, if, we, if we plan it seriously, because when we go to these mega missions of 20 billion, that's also the cost of setting up a base on the moon. Mm. Let's let's go back to Earth um, for a second, Guillaume, before I let you go. And this has been a fascinating yeah. conversation. Thank you so much. I just want to go off topic for a second because I know you are Catalan and um, the jailing this week of um, um, Catalonian leaders has is of much discussion in Ireland and elsewhere. I was just wondering how you're feeling about that this week. Well, I feel, I told you yesterday, I, I'm feeling very emotional. First, this is not, they, they have not, they have not been jailed. They have been in jail for two years already. Yeah, yeah, but the, yeah, sorry, the, um, yes. for the, the sentence. sentencing, yes. 
Yeah, the sentence, I have to say, that didn't um, impress me much anyway. I was expecting something like this. Um, doesn't matter, I have my political views and I, I have my reasons why I think that's the case. It has to do with how the justice system works here in Spain. I think the, 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 the drama here is that the, the central government, now the Socialist Party and also the other big party in Spain, they, in one month we have an election. And they keep saying that the solution is to implement the rule of law and to have the police implementing um, whatever justice they think. And only when everything is respected and the unity of the country is preserved, then we can have a conversation. Um, and it's very aggressive. You just hear them. I guess that it works for the Spanish proud people, but for us, in Catalans, independentists or not, this is very aggressive. And, and we feel this pressure all the time. I think the people is really pissed off about this. I mean, they are politicians, they should be talking, is their job. And that's the view of many people, independentists or not. So that's a bit of the, the pissing off general. I mean, the judges can be um, old, uh, anachronic, um, old farts, but I mean, the politicians that we have should, should know better. And their job is to, to try to fix things, not just to, to repress or impose it, arguing that the rule of law is the only thing that exists in nature. Mm. What do you think is going to happen next from, from where you're standing? Uh, well, what will happen next uh, is that in one month we have the next election. And I don't think that anything substantial will happen from now, between now and then. It's 10th of November, I think. My, maybe the right-wing parties will um, take control of the country again. And if they decide to say to do what, all that they say, they will implement direct control in the region and the thing can go out of control. That's what I suspect. If the left-wing parties or the central parties, center parties manage to, to get things under conversation, maybe it will take a year or two to normalize relations again, but um, it's not a quick solution, I think. Well, thank you for, for, for that analysis, game. Really appreciate it. And we're sending you solidarity from Ireland here. And uh, thank you so much for your expertise. And keep up yes. your amazing, groundbreaking, universe-defining work. Well, thank you for calling. It's always very nice to talk with uh, interested people, really. What do you think of that, Andrea? I think it's bananas. <laughs> It's so bananas. But like the thing that goes through my mind is like, I'm I'm like, yeah, now what? So we know there's a plan there. Now what? What do we do? Like, well, this knowledge is, is obviously power and, and we know it's there now. But now what? Well, this is where the star shot program comes in. So mm. this is the light sail thing. Um, and a light sail, I just genuinely Googled <laughs> how to build a light sail. So a light sail is a, a, like a, a a craft that can travel insane distances with very little, you know, it doesn't need mm. fuel or whatever. So basically it's made up of packets <laughs> called, or no, bits of energy basically called photons. They don't have any mass, so they weigh nothing, but they have momentum. And so the solar sails <laughs> capture the momentum of the photons with basically big giant um, what do they look like? It looks like a tinfoil kind of weird triangly star. So there's these reflective material that catches the momentum of the photons, don't have mass, but they propel them forward from like the solar energy vibes. Yeah. And the photons bounce off the sail 
and that basically transfers their momentum onto the sale that pushes the sale forward. Sounds like Saturday night, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's basically falling out of bar. Um, the Jaeger has momentum and as it hits your reflective body... You lose it, any mass. It, <laughs> correct. But the bra- this the Starshot program is um, this kind of research and yeah. engineering project that Zuckerberg actually invested loads of money into and Stephen Hawking and stuff as well. And they were it was kind of a proof of concept thing but actually the planet that they have identified that they are most likely to be able to reach is the one that Guillaume discovered Proxima B amazing and but you know what sometimes and this is my head being a very small head it sometimes feels like we need to look inwards rather than outwards and it feels like there's a lot of big swinging dicks going, I can find, I can get onto Mars and you've got like Tulsa doing all this exploration, but to what end? And well, like, that's is- a small minded thing because obviously you have to be hungry for knowledge to push things forward, but maybe we could work on making things right here. But this is why I really like Guillaume yeah. as a scientist and the way he speaks mm. about this, because he's very reflective about that and how how do you prioritise exploration yeah. on from a planet that is dying? And what are the political decisions that could be made from that? And also, yeah, you're right about the kind of macho, like stuff like Elon Musk like firing a Tesla into Mm. orbit or you know Trump being like I want my space force and this kind of stuff but I think when we stop exploring um, we lose an awful lot but again like Ian was talking about these like 30 billion dollar mega projects of like shooting a telescope into space so it can like capture things further afield are are kind of wild what I am interested in I think we should start exploring our emotions more to be honest (laughs) why is Andrew giggling in the corner I'm a man well and therein lies the problem (laughs) new episode coming soon (laughs) my favourite interstellar uh, vibe is you know the uh, two years ago, Oumuamua, um, which was the first interstellar object that was detected passing through our solar system. Um, it is a cigar-shaped rock type thing, but also made up of very interesting cigar-shaped materials. <laughs> cigar, cigar-shaped. Nothing else shaped. Cigar-shaped, um, and and. Um, it it kind of was made up of all these weird things and it had like a dark red colour and anyway, it then left and there's loads of kind of a lot of scientists that would not, they're not quacks. They're basically Mm. saying the way this thing orbit or entered our solar system and exited, kind of like propelled itself out um, would indicate that but maybe it was actually an alien spaceship and maybe it was using light sail technology or or maybe it's just kind of a giant rock that, that kind of came past us. Um, but it's gone now. So it's probably gone back to just debrief on the Earth vibes. I think it's really comforting to think that there are aliens, though, in our, like, absor- absor- observing us and minding us and stuff. Um, they're not doing the best job. <laughs> right no, now. they probably are. And we're the ones fucking it up, let's yeah. be honest. Prime directive. 
What did you say? The prime directive. What's the prime directive? <laughs> Where's your mic? <laughs> you can't but just be shouting, <laughs> you know, giggling at our like emotional. Is it the Star Trek thing? When you go to a planet, you don't, you know, you watch, you don't get involved in the. It's like that Simpsons episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking of, yeah. So it's like tourism. No, but it's, it wasn't that the whole thing of uh, Starfleet or Star Trek? Well, that's who's building the fucking hotels. <laughs> you, you tell me, Andrew. I, I'm not a Star Trek. I'm not a Trekkie, so. I should have kept my mouth shut. No, come on, on, please. I want to know. No, I, I can't know. remember now. Okay. Well, great input. <laughs> Thank you. So, what? let's talk about what we can do. So, you can raise 20 billion. No. Um, you know what you can do? If you live in an urban area, or like a city, for example, um, Get out into the countryside as much as you can and look up at night. I find looking up at the stars is the most profound, relaxing things that one can do. That's my little tip on what you can do. I don't know what you can do to kind of further space exploration. You can certainly visit the uh, planetarium in Armagh. Definitely. And you can support us on patreon.com forward slash United Ireland and maybe leave it up to us and we'll start our own space exploration. <laughs> We're a few patrons off that. So maybe if you could <laughs> chip in that three euro this week, maybe we'll have our own se- mass proto- photon spaceship stand by (laughs) South William Street space program it all started in October 2019 (laughs) Grogan's we have a problem I'm going to space this weekend fuck it (laughs) now it's time for us to get in the sea and before we do get in the sea we have nearly gotten round to our tote bags being completed and let me tell you the design of them is absolutely stunning I cannot wait to be the holder of such totes designed by our lovely Sarah Fox Um, and if you want to get your hands on one you can just simply become a Patreon on patreon.com United Ireland and they will be winging their way out to you very soon and I might even put up a graphic of the beautiful design on our social medias this week so you can have a little goo but I digress. Who can get in the sea this week? Dublin City Council, again, who's uh, made such an absolute hoo-ha of pedestrian college green. Like, I, we're a business on South William Street, so we got, like, all the, like, pre-questions, the post-questions, the blah, blah, blah. You're actually just asking people to walk on a street. It's not that complicated. They spent 17 grand over these days on barriers to to stop people walking is the whole point not to encourage people to walk so that breaks down to six grand per day on barriers and I feel like this is it feels a bit emblem I'd love to be able to say that word emblematic of one how complicated DCC seem to make everything two how difficult they make it uh, to do anything to put on a club night to open a club whatever and three how much money is being spent and wasted on such things as barriers when clearly they're not required. We know how to walk on a path. I think we can manage to figure out how to walk through College Green. Also really stupid, like no consideration for design. I hate those barriers, you know, the kind of cowgate barriers everywhere. They're absolutely gross. And um, But like ar- that, around the pedestrianisation, there was a set of rules put up. I on, know, like, but it, it was... the. But 
the testing of the pedestrianisation of College Green under the, you know, whatever design of Dublin City Council was terrible. It was embarrassing to actually be trying to do something that so many other countries have that's so easy, people walking around a public space and to chuck all these barriers and to make it so terribly designed, inhospitable, aggressive language, all that kind of stuff. And then paying 17k to actually to Activa, which is Dennis O'Brien's company, um, for all these completely superfluous, ugly, unnecessary barriers was so stupid. And I just it's just not good enough. Like, how are people in the in the council who were doing that looking at what they did and going, oh, yeah, that'll do like what is like I just can't well, we'll, we'll watch with open eyes because get in the sea South William Street and Drury Street are about to be pedestrianised um, all you do as a is test stop, case <laughs> all you do is stop, stop cars. the fucking cars going down them no we've there's been questionnaires people, about it ha, like fuck's sake sorry I'm just I'm in an absolute failure today <laughs> with all this shit anyway get in the fucking sea uh, now, on to something a little bit more positive, maybe. Some fave bits, Una. Let's get those endorphins flowing. <laughs> okay, no, I do actually have loads of fave bits um, this week. One of them, um, uh, this week, myself and Sarah Kapolik, the Irish Times, are hosting the inaugural Women in Irish Media event. Um, you, It'll probably be over by the time you're listening to this happening on Wednesday evening this week. And we're just trying to get um, something going with regards to kind of solidarity and good vibes for women in Irish media because um, it can be difficult. What happens sometimes. at it? Is it an awards or an event? No, or no, it's basically what we're trying to do is set up um, a social outlet and uh, a network across organisations for women in Irish media because there isn't really any represent not representative body but even like way for people to to get, to get together and there are constantly these kind of panel discussions and events and themes around discussing women in media women in media this women in media that but there's no kind of structure um within the industry um across all media outlets um that we feel uh would be you know of benefit to women right now obviously there are, are kind of smaller ones like um, that that address one singular parts of the media like Women on Air did a really good job and all that kind of stuff but we want to just kind of get women in a room um, and see what they want and what would be beneficial and when you look at the kind of progress I suppose that's been made in the film and television industry um, with Screen Ireland um doing a lot of stuff with regards to gender equity and then also organisations like Women in Film and Television have been really successful. So we're trying to see um, what something like that would look like in a Build journalism... an army of women journalists. Journalism context, context yeah. <clears throat> Fab. So uh, that's giving me joy. Um, also, uh, the i.ny... So, is it invitation only or can people... If you are listening to this before Wednesday evening and you are a woman working in the Irish media uh, and you want to pop along to this email womenirishmedia at gmail.com and um, I presume there'll be another one so if, yes, there'll so be another email one, yeah. nonetheless yeah. if you want to get involved um, my other fave bit this week is i.ny festival in Limerick this is a cultural project kind of rooted in the connections between Ireland and New York and there's loads of talks on and stuff in Limerick this weekend and parties including Mother having a party cool DJ Marv's DJing Kevin Barry's doing a talk and I am doing a talk um, about uh, basically about um, the kind of links between queer people in Ireland and in New York 
And I'm really, really excited because one of the women participating in this is Brenda Brannock, who is um, a queer woman from Dingle and an absolute boss. And she's basically run loads of queer bars in New York for 30 years, including the fabulous new $3 bill club in uh, Williamsburg. And she's just total boss. I'm really, really looking forward to hearing her talk about the clubbing history of um, Irish queers in New York. Boom. How brilliant is that going to be? That's on Friday evening. Other fave bits. Two films. Very different. I enjoyed both of them. First one, I was lucky enough to go along to screening of The Irishman, uh, which is Scorsese's new film, in the lighthouse the other evening, thanks to my buddy Anthony, who got me a ticket. Um, Three hours, 48 minutes. Uh, but it's good and I enjoyed it and I actually the more I think about it the more I love it I'm not going to say anything else about it because I think people are waiting to see it and it's going to be on Netflix as well but I would say definitely go see it in the cinema um, I don't just don't know if these big epic films work on laptop screens I, like I couldn't get through Roma on Netflix so I wish I saw it in the cinema so yeah go Irishman uh, Scorsese's back go see and the other one much closer to home A Bump Along the Way is a film Uh, starring Brona Gallagher and produced by her sister and it is so charming and so nice and I went to screening of it the other night and um, what was really interesting was um, Brona's um, sister who is the producer whose name is Louise Gallagher uh, was talking about the process of making the film and it's directed by this woman called um, Shelley Love and it's written by this woman called Tess McGowan and what they were talking about is how they got funding for childcare for women who were working on the film and that was kind of built into an extra part of their budget and it was just really interesting to hear things that have been talked about in the film industry about how to make workplaces and sets more um, open to women working on them so that women can rise up through the ranks and hearing her talk, hearing um, Louise Gallagher just talk about basically what they did was really inspiring. Uh, so it's still in cinemas. Check it out. It's really, really charming and lovely. And Brown Gallagher, just love her. So those are my five bits. Yay. My fave bits. I went to the Mango Mathman album listening party um, the other t- week. You How was there. that? You were, it was very beautifully um, hosted. Wow, yeah, really? Yeah, it was uh, Dulcet Tones by some girl. I can't remember her name. It was me. Uh, and yeah, I'm sweating for the album to listen to it. It's out on Friday. Um, and there was... No, the single's out on Friday. Oh, uh, the single's out on yeah, Friday. Yeah, Deep Blue's out on Friday. Oh, well half right um, <laughs> but yeah I just thought it was a really poignant lovely love affair to Dublin and the relationships that happen in Dublin and the stories that are told and and it sounded really good um, and it, it was I think it was really interesting to me that there was so many different styles within it that like I suppose when I thought of Mango and Matman I, th- I thought of one style whereas they brought it on a complete journey in different styles and the collaborations with like Arena and Lisa Hannigan and uh, Loa um, it just was a lovely piece of work I thought Yeah it was one of those evenings where loads of people um, and actually a lot of musicians and people who work in, in the music industry stuff were saying to me afterwards how they found it's so inspiring that these guys were just kind of talking about their art and the tensions between them and how they overcame them and, mm. and made them and it's and it's really beautiful to to see people making art on their own terms and communicating it and marketing it on their own terms as well by just letting people hear it in a room um, on, a, on a rainy night in Dublin so 
it was very sweet and I love those guys yeah it was a great night um, and then another thing I is my fave bit is there's a book being launched tomorrow Wednesday if you're listening called Through Her Eyes and it's rewriting history I suppose a little bit taking in the stories of women who might have who were forgotten along the way um, it's by Clodagh Finn and it's a new history of Ireland in 21 women so it's uh, flipping I suppose the stories and getting a bit of a um, empowering the women's stories that are oft forgotten um, so I can't wait to see and hear that and see how that goes and I suppose something like that is even more poignant to me this week because I was this happens a good bit like don't you know when you're asked to do things for big conglomerate companies and they're like we're going to do this for entrepreneur or like empowering women day and blah 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 and then you're like oh yeah deadly when is it and uh, what's the fee for my time and my like my everything I'll be doing for it and it's like oh there's actually no fee and you're literally like how can you justify doing this empowering women event but you're not empowering women at the very base level name names Andrea no uh, so I can't wait to go and see the history of these women that's it <laughs> <laughs> they're my favourites hey people the end <laughs> this podcast is produced by Andrew Mang and a Castaway Media with support from Susie Bennett. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all of our design. You can find links to all of our socials on our website, which is unitedirelandpodcast.com. And if you're enjoying listening, let us know. Like, honestly, the messages we've been getting recently are just so heartwarming and like they really light up our WhatsApp group and we send them to each other. Yeah. Our WhatsApp group of two people. <laughs> if you've any suggestions for subjects you'd like us to look at for an episode, drop us a mail or a DM. And as Andre says, keep the sound comments coming. Yeah. Now. Better than sound comments, that was a bit of fucking money. Give yeah. us some Patreon. Or review us on iTunes. Give us some five stars. Uh, I am very excited about your tuna chicken roll because I do feel like we need an injection of energy this week you because you're a little under the weather you're a little sick oh for me and me because I've just entered a new phase of my nihilism about um, <laughs> this country and that poll in the Irish Times so I was like what is wrong with people so so save me with the rave please okay this week I thought we've gone a bit ravey we've gone in a few different directions the last few weeks so it's back to a disco and we're go- it's a positive bop along song that just can't help but make you smile and it is called Calling Out by Sophie Lloyd I've been Una Mullally I've been Andrea Horan this has been United Ireland and that was Arma Arma we don't share a mother and aliens <laughs> thanks Andrea you only made that joke about four times <laughs> and it wasn't the funny any of them <laughs> wasn't funny the first time sure as hell is it funny now <laughs> thank you Arma we love you Morning. 